So we're in the midst of a series on the minor prophets, uh, that part of the Bible that people hardly read. Uh, and it's the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and uh, it is uh, really these books uh, that, uh, that, that kind of uh, really speak to God's response to sin among his own people. Uh, Judah and Israel, but also among the nations. So we've looked at Jonah, uh, and we've looked at Joel, Habakkuk, Obadiah. Today we start with Zephaniah. And so go to the end of the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're too far. Uh, if you go back to the Psalms, you're kind of in the middle of that. So, uh, so Zephaniah, one of the prophets that come to the people of God. We're going to look at the history of when he spoke and when he ministered. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you've noticed that a lot of times the, the end of the prophets are really uplifting and encouraging. The beginning of the prophets are like a slap across the face. So this is chapter one, so be forewarned, uh, this might hurt. Uh, but in a sense, it is God's mercy that he would speak stark truth to people and he's speaking uh, to his own people here, to people that may know a lot about God, but yet might be distant from him, or maybe even divided in their worship. Love would say he's going to speak truth rather than allow his people to, to, cont to continue in those ways. Our culture says love is let me do what I want, regardless of consequences. God would say it's quite something different, that he's going to speak truth to his people over sin. So would you stand with me as we hear the words of, prophet, of the prophet Zephaniah, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. That the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who have, whoops, I skipped verse 5. And uh, I don't have it here, so you can read that. I'll skip the 6. Uh, and uh, we'll get there in a second. Those who have turned back uh, from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, for all, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. 
At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified city and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's pray. God, these are heavy words. And we don't take any of this lightly, Father. I pray that uh, as we have uh, read about and spoken about and seen already in, in our service, just our sin and the heinousness of our sin and how easily we become hardened in it. Yet, Father, I pray that that would not be where we land today. God, your grace abounds. Yes, we might be uh, in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of waywardness, in the midst of uh, finding ourselves uh, steered or turned away. But God, you call us back through the words of your prophet, and in that we find your grace. And so, Father, I pray that today, possibly for those who don't know Christ, today would be the day of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want, to, want you to imagine yourself being a six-year-old kid. And when you're a six-year-old kid, your dad becomes king. Okay? And pro, but prior to your dad becoming king, you know, you were, uh, you're too young to know it, but your grandfather was one of the most horrific rulers your country has ever seen. You didn't understand, but it was said of your grandfather that he did things more evil than the most heinous foreign country around them. About your grandfather, it said that he shed very much innocent blood until he had filled the capital city, in a sense, with blood from one end to another. That was your granddad. And when you were six years old, your granddad died, and your father became king. And he followed in your grandfather's footsteps. So when you were six, your dad becomes king. You live for two years until there was a conspiracy in your dad's, in, among your dad's servants. And they conspired against him and put him to death in his house. And so at the ripe old age of eight, you become king. King of the nation. 
to which your grandfather was a horrendous, horrific ruler. Your dad, for two years, followed in his footsteps. And now as an eight-year-old, you get to rule in their place. In the midst of this, the people... Uh, the people had been in rebellion against God. They worshipped and served other gods and other idols. And your name is Josiah. Josiah, who became king of, of Judah when he was only eight years old. That was him. Manasseh, his grandfather. Ammon, his dad. Some of the most horrific kings that Judah has ever known. And you get to be king when you're eight after your dad was conspired against. How would you feel? You'd feel a little overwhelmed, right? Well, he came to power in 640 B.C., 640 years before Christ. In the 18th year of his reign, uh, so he started when he was eight. In the 18th year of his reign, he ordered that the temple of God to be repaired. Because everybody was in rebellion, everybody was serving other gods and worshiping idols, that basically nobody cared about the temple. And Josiah, pushing back against the move of his granddad, pushing back against the move of his own father, called for the, for the temple to be repaired. And as they do the, the, uh, the, uh, the repair process, the high priest finds the book of the law. And in finding the book of the law and the writings of Moses, they find the book of Deuteronomy and calling God's people back to faithfulness of God. So if he took, if he took uh, the kingship in 640 B.C., 18 years later, is 622 B.C., when he finds the book of the law, it's the 100th anniversary of the northern kingdom, Israel, being overthrown and scattered by Assyria. Why did that happen? Because they had rebelled against God and served other gods. The 100-year anniversary, maybe probably not to the day, but to the year, they find the book of the law in the temple that they themselves had ignored. And Josiah calls for a revival among God's people. So here you are, a young king. Uh, you find and call for the repair of the temple. You find the book of the law that your people, your father, your grandfather had basically ignored and turned against for years before you. I think you could handle having a wingman, don't you think? That you're not just by yourself, that other people are speaking the same thing. And this is where we get Zephaniah. That's the context that Zephaniah is speaking to. We saw it in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Okay, so here's Josiah becoming king as an eight-year-old. And the word of God comes to Zephaniah as Josiah is leading. Does that make sense? Josiah is the young king. The word comes to the prophet, and this is what Zephaniah speaks to this people who had been in rebellion against God, but yet this call to revival is in the midst of the people. Some com commentators would say that Zephaniah was prior to, he spoke and wrote prior to that discovery. I would be in the other side that would say that, that he is speaking and prophesying after the discovery of the law. And here's why. We don't have time to go through all of the different ways. But the language of Zephaniah, you can Google this, because uh, it's actually fascinating. 
the language of Zephaniah overlaps the book of Deuteronomy in at least nine different, uh, nine different ways. You know, in, in verse 13, Zephaniah says, And they will build houses, and they shall not dwell in them. Deuteronomy 28, guess what it says? A house you shall build, and you shall not dwell in it. Uh, later in verse 13, they're going to plant vineyards and not drink their wine. Same thing in Deuteronomy. Uh, verse 15, a day of constraint and distress. Deuteronomy 28, uh, in, the, in the constraint and the distress by which your enemy will distress you. They both speak of a day of darkness, a day of thick darkness, a day of a cloud and a thick cloud. Zephaniah and the words of Zephaniah overlap the words of Deuteronomy, which would lead many commentators to say that Zephaniah is speaking after this discovery. Now, in fairness, some say it's before, but I think the overlap pushes in that direction. So what's interesting is Zephaniah and Josiah are leading in the midst of a people, living in the midst of a people who have historically lived in rebellion against God, yet now they're being called back to him. And so they're speaking to this, Josiah reigning, Zephaniah speaking, living among a people of rebellion with a history of rebellion. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of what God says to, through his prophets to the nation of Israel and to the people of Judah and the surrounding countries, it feels a lot like our modern day here in the United States. A country that's very familiar with the things of God, yet doesn't really feel like a godly country at all. Maybe a history of knowing the things of God, but now today it feels like it's pushing against. Now, don't confuse my words. I am not saying the United States is the new Israel. I do not think the scriptures support that. But it is interesting. If God's word is written to specific people at a specific time, and it's written for us, isn't it wild, the overlap? In a culture of people who uh, have, have and are living in rebellion against the Lord. So what does Zephaniah say to this people? Well, he speaks first of the day of the Lord. So uh, chapter 1 is, is kind of summarized by this idea of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, if you want to say like little d, day of the Lord, uh, is basically any move of God uh, as a day of judgment against sin, against rebellion, against his people, or against a neighboring country. Uh, and, and you see this uh, throughout the prophets. We saw this phrase mentioned in the book of Joel. Uh, we didn't have time to, uh, to totally uh, unpack what that was. Uh, we see it in, in many other books of the prophets where God is going to move against sin and rebellion. And oftentimes, that's, it's talking uh, about something that is going to happen in the, in the near term. So, uh, like, so, so Zephaniah is probably speaking after 622 B.C., in 605 is the beginning of the Babylonian overthrow of the southern kingdom. So we're not talking many years later when that begins. It doesn't come to fruition and fullness until 586. But not too many years later, 
God moves against his people in the ways that are talked about here. So there are many smaller, lowercase days of the Lord. And then there is also, those are a foretaste of the big D day of the Lord, when Jesus will return and there will be a judgment on all people. There will be a day that, it, that all the other smaller moves of God against sin and rebellion are only rehearsals. Do you look at that day or the day of the Lord with fear and dread or with hope? For God's people, it's a day of hope. Why? Because we don't stand on our own righteousness. It's a day of hope because of the gospel. So the day of the Lord is what we're going to see what this means in a second from Zephaniah. Basically that the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, it is near. It is not far off. So that's why in verse 7, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This is happening. It is coming. This is, there is a short-term version and a big ultimate capital D version. There is a day coming when you will stand before God. A day coming when you will stand before God for your sin, your rebellion, your way of living that is contrary to him. The prophets say it's not negotiable. It's not a question. It is a certainty on the pages of Scripture. It will be a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Not exactly the day that that most people would be looking for. And so why is that day coming? Is because the day of the Lord is against sin. The worship of other gods. God's judgment uh, begins with his people. Isn't that interesting? He is speaking to his people here. Their misaligned worship. They knew him and his word, yet they worshiped other gods. And so how does, how does this come against his people? Is verses 4. I'll actually have verse 5 this time and 6. Okay. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and that's a foreign god, and the names of the idolatrous idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. We'll see what that means in a second. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Why is the day of the Lord coming back in verse 4? Is the remnant of Baal and the idolatrous priests. Baal is another god of a neighboring country. It's a Canaanite god. uh, And there are those priests who are not just leading God's people to worship the living God, but to actually worship foreign gods, and other gods among them. Those who actually bow down, the ones who bow down on the roofs is, is, a, uh, is, is kind of a, a phrase kind of carrying on that worship. But this next phrase is staggering. Those who bow down and swear, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Okay? 
Who is that? Did it change? Let's go right there. There we go. Swear by Milcom. Who is that? And what is that? That is, Milcom is an Ammonite god who is worshipped by human sacrifice. So get that sentence. Okay? This is to his own people. People who swear and bow down to the Lord and swear, in a sense, bow down to an Ammonite god who they worship by human sacrifice. It's not just straight up, I'm going to go away and forget the Lord. There's this divided worship among the people of God. That they would say and bow down to the Lord and at the same time worship a foreign god with human sacrifice. How do you get to that place? You might say, you know, at least they bow down to the Lord. You know, at least they did that. But I would say it might even be more dangerous. To have a division of your worship, I would say, is even more dangerous than straight-up worship of another god. Why? Because straight-up worship of another god, at least it's clear. At least you know where you are. Okay? It's not good, it's not right, but there's no ambiguity. Because what happens with a divided heart? One that says, I worship God and I worship the success of my career. I worship God and the pleasure that my life affords me. I worship God and something else. I worship God and this other God of Baal or of Milcom. And I don't mean to take this lightly with this example, but it's kind of like, you know, I root for Clemson and Carolina. You know, and if you're like a, a real fan, you're like, that person, no, they don't, they don't know what they're doing, right? They don't know how to be a fan. You know, in my world, it's Michigan and Ohio State. Like, you can't root for both. You know, I grew up in Florida, Florida, Florida State. It doesn't work. And if someone says, I root for both, there's something wrong with them. Because they don't know what it is to be a real fan, right? Now, you can have this debate over donuts, but... But, but, but we get, the, the point is interesting, right? It's kind of like you'd rather them root for another team rather than say they root for both because it's like it totally destroys the idea of fandom. And God is saying he's moving against the divided heart of his people and he's going to bring the day of the Lord against them. Now, what does that look like in modern America? We might say we bow down to the Lord, but what else might be a part of and a source of your worship? But it even gets it more interesting. Why does God move against his people? Is in verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. What is he saying? He's going to move against the complacency of people's hearts. And that word for complacent is to be cold or uh, congealed, kind of like stiff, uh, you know, not soft and actually humble before the Lord, but cold and stiff and rigid before him. The ones who would say the Lord's not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. He's just, well, 
he's, you know what, he's unconcerned and he's not going to do anything. You know, he hasn't yet, so that means he's not going to now or in the future. God must be okay with how we're living. And God says, the ones who are complacent, the ones who say in their heart, God's not going to do anything. On that day, they will meet the day of the Lord. And that hits pretty hard because I would bet every person in this room has some sort of thing that we are complacent to. Thinking the Lord in his patience has almost either forgotten about or given approval of or, or, or something. But don't presume on the patience of the Lord. That his patience does not equal permission. And his patience does not equal approval. His patience ought to lead you to repentance. That God has every right to do what? According to your sin and my sin. He has every right to wipe us off the face of the planet. But in his mercy, he patiently gives us time to come before him. And he calls us back to repentance. Even when we move in violence and fraud, God is uh, in, in patience giving us that time to respond. Yet, there will be a day when we stand before him. That great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, in this passage, three times it refers to on that day. Verse 8, 9, and 10. Verse 12 is at that time. Verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. Verse 15, the great day of the Lord is near. Verse 18, the day of the wrath of the Lord just in case you missed it the first time, here's about 12 different ways to say that God moves against sin. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. It's basically undoing the created order uh, in as God moves against sin, and it's against God's people. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. That's a gate in Jerusalem. A wail from the second quarter. That's a, that's a part of the city of Jerusalem. A loud crash from the hills that surround Jerusalem. The great day of the Lord is near, and it's hastening fast. A day of bitterness. The mighty man cries aloud there. It's a day of wrath, day of distress, a day of... You get the point. Do you want... <laughs> I can't even bring that in. But uh, what did I say? Hey, hey Google or something sound like Siri? But anyway... Uh, I'm trying, but I can't get you. Can't get there. Not as quick as Pete. Uh, there will be a day when you stand before God in His power and His holiness and His righteousness. It's a day that none of us want to be. And that's why the first song that we sing is Awaken Your People. 
even before we sing, awaken this city. It's awaken your people, God. God, would you wake us up? Would you and me move from our complacency over the way that we want to live and ways that we are divided in our worship, ways that we are resting in all sorts of other things than the Lord? Awaken your people. God's people are awakened first. So what can you do? How can you stand against God in that day? First off, to people of affluence, you might want to think that your silver and your gold and your 401k and your success and somehow that secures you from this day, and it doesn't. Verse 18, their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Your silver, your money, your success, that won't save you. Verse 13, your gods or their goods will be plundered, their house laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink from them. If you are finding security and finding hope in your money and your success, you will meet the day of the Lord just like everybody else. But man, that sounds a lot like our culture. That's where, that's where hope is found. That's where happiness is found. That's where satisfaction is found. Go get as much money as you can and you'll be insulated until you meet the Lord. And all of that becomes stubble. If that won't work, how do you stand before the Lord? What could you possibly do? Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. We live in a culture that talks first and listens second, <laughs> if we listen at all. We talk our way out of things. Uh, we speak. Uh, the Lord says, in the midst of all of this, be silent. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. It said in the end, prophet Joel, that who knows, you know, be silent before the Lord. Who knows? He may leave a blessing behind him. The prophets are saying exactly the rest of the scriptures are saying the only thing you can do to be right and stand before the Lord is to hit the ground. How would you stand is you don't. <laughs> you hit the ground before the Lord and you humble yourself before him. And you, and you cry out for his grace and his mercy. That's the only thing you can do when you meet the Lord in his power and his strength and on that great and terrible day. That's where grace is found. That's where hope is found. Why would that day be hope for God's people? Is because we are not resting on ourselves. Praise the Lord. We are resting on another. We're resting on Jesus. And so what can we do? Be silent. What did Jesus do? It's not an example to follow. He did what we were unable to do for ourselves. What did Jesus do? He sweat drops of blood. What did Jesus do? He knew the awesome wrath of God unto sin. He knew what he was facing when he looked at the cross. And he took onto himself the sin of his people. Think about Jesus in the garden. 
Jesus was around, and I'm not saying that flippantly, when chapter 1 of Zephaniah was written and spoken. He is the Word. It is His Word that speaks of that day of anguish and darkness and wrath. And He knew what He was facing as He was going to the cross. He was going to take all of chapter 1 onto His shoulders so that you and I, if we know Him by faith, don't have to bear up under that. And as Jesus thought about that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looked at, looked at the next day of facing the cross and facing the wrath of his Father, how did he respond? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of the wrath of God. If you're willing, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He goes on, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him because it was too difficult to bear on his own. They sent, an angel was sent to strengthen him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The eternal Son of God, all-powerful, all-holiness, all-righteousness, that was his response to the wrath of God. How do you think we're going to do? And yet, he knows what that anguish is. He knows what that darkness is. And the Father pours it out on the Son so that you and I can be co-heirs with Jesus of the Father. Jesus sweats drops of blood of facing the wrath of God. And we go on skipping as if our money and our silver and our pleasure and our gold are going to take care of us just fine. Are you skipping through life when you ought to be sweating drops of blood? God is saying, in your complacency, the people who sit in church, the people who went to temple, the people of Israel, the people of God, the church, are you complacent over these things? The beautiful promise of the gospel is that Jesus, in that angst, goes to the cross to bear up under the wrath of God, and while he is on the cross, what does it declare? What does he declare? He declares in the ninth hour, it's a Hebrew phrase, and it's translated that last sentence, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, forsaken by his Father, under the wrath of God, so that we might be brought in as sons and daughters of the King. That's the grace of God. The cross is scandalous. Because the only one who was innocent endured the wrath of God. While those who are guilty and deserve the wrath of God get brought in. Free in God's grace and under his mercy. What an amazing truth. The prophets speak that over us and it ought to humble us. And give us and bring us to worship. Because, wow, that's amazing, amazing grace. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would give us just a picture of, of your goodness. Uh, 
God, I, I don't even think we can fathom what the day of your wrath will look like. And God, as we think about it, um, it ought to just stop us in our tracks. Father, bring us to that place of humility before you. God, that we don't run our lives. We don't make, our, uh, make up the rules. God, you created this world for us to know you and enjoy you and glorify you. And in that, we find life. And yet, Father, we just say all the other. We say everything else that we, th we can think of, that's where life is found. God, forgive us for that. Father, I know that I deserve your wrath. Thank you for pouring it out on Jesus and not me. Thank you for bringing me near as a son. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for somebody in this room. God, that they would hear what they deserve before you, that they know they cannot stand before you, and by faith that they would cry out to you and come to you. God, I pray that you'd move by your spirit in that. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.